sky so bright, just like raindrops in the window pane. When your eyes are blue, something's wrong with you. Let me kiss the love light back again. Brown eyes, why are you blue? Brown eyes. Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And um, in this episode, we'll be beginning a new series, looking at the works of Sinclair Lewis, oh, well, three novels in particular. Um, I know the Library of America has published at least two, maybe a few more volumes of Lewis, Lewis's writing, but I only have one of them, and I've been meaning to kind of get back to early 20th century writing, progressive era writing, 1920s writing, I love that stuff. As you probably know, but it's been a while since I've kind of ventured back. I think the last time I've been close to here was with the the Willa Cather stuff. Very different type of stories. Um, But anyways, we'll be looking at Aerosmith. We'll be looking at Elmer Gantry and Dodgeworth. So this is middle of of Lewis's career. It's, you know, his early stuff like Main Street, Babbitt, that stuff. He already, he's already famous at this time. In fact, Aerosmith uh, famously won a, Pulitzer Prize that that Lewis rejected. He, I guess he thought his novel wasn't the best published that year, so he turned it down. Um, so these are fairly lengthy novels, uh, so it's going to take, I think, 13 episodes to get through these three novels. But, um, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to get back into kind of meaty books. I've, I've had some fiction lately with the edgy. There's been some fiction in there, but they're like shorter novels. Modernist, kind of hard to deal with, you know, these... Naturalistic, naturalist era, progressive era novels. They're so fun to read. Um, you know, just mighty epics, if, if you will. But these are personal epics for the most part, these three novels. They're morality stories. They're, 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 they deal with big issues through, um, through central characters, especially Aerosmith and Elmer Gantry do. And I really enjoy it. I think Aerosmith, I've actually was thinking about doing Aerosmith for a while, just because it's it is about a plague and and you know the coronavirus epidemic is still going on while I'm recording this, um, you know. But it was just a, a a volume I never quite got got quite got into to reading systematically, and now I have. So so for the next handful of episodes for the next few months, we're going to be looking at the works of, of Sinclair Lewis, and I'm very excited to do that um, because I don't know they're just such a pleasure to read. <clears throat> So, anyways, Aerosmith, um, Aerosmith, A R R O W S M I T H, no relation to the band, A E R O S M I T H, Aerosmith. Um, but uh, it's the name of the main character, Martin Aerosmith, and it's all about uh, it's it's the life story essentially of a a young doctor uh, who we meet him. He's fourteen years old. Reading Grey's Anatomy in his in his like small town doctor's office, uh, already fascinated with medicine. We see him go through medical school. We see him become enamored with uh, a particular doctor and, and especially lab medicine and bacteriology and immunization. He gets uh, obsessed with that stuff. We see a lot of great tensions in this novel between the philosophy of medicine for commerce, medicine for religion medicine for like as a consumer act or med or or actual research you know and what's the proper role of the brilliant doctor i guess is is what we play with here if 
I mean, if you ever watched even something like the television series House, kind of plays with the same tension, right? Like, what's what's the proper role of the genius doctor, right? And that series, of course, airs on the side of of you know research, uh, mystery, investigation, the big case. That's really the proper role of the doctor. Um, here, it's more about is the tension between lab science and, and commercial medicine, I guess. And this comes to a head in the final chapters of the book, which are set in, during a plague in, in the West Indies, where these two threads of, of the deep science and the personal practice of medicine come together, I think, in interesting ways. So I know many of you have probably read Aerosmith. It's, it's a fairly famous novel. I don't know if it's taught in high schools uh, or colleges it's pretty anymore. It's pretty long, but it's it's a popular novel and it's an accessible novel and it's it's a lot of fun and I, I think a lot of people have come across it at some point in their life. Um, so let's let's jump into the first uh, few chapters. I, th- I think Aerosmith is 480, 470 pages. So I'll do five episodes on it. Um, it'll, you know roughly around 100 pages each as normal so what do we got here um wow i'm so excited to get back to talking about a a novel after being kind of stuck in a in nonfiction for a while you know it's like well i'll read a bunch of novels and i'll get sick of it and i'll be like oh i really want to do some nonfiction." and i did a bunch of stuff i did that you know galbraith and leopold and a bunch of agi which was mostly nonfiction stuff then it's like, oh, I want to get back to novels. So it's, it's I guess that's the way the series is going to go, um, as long as I keep doing it. Well, anyways, yeah, this episode, I'll look at the first eight chapters briefly. These cover mostly his education. Um, and I actually found, like, the it's just by chance, I guess, but these 100 pages chunks, they kind of line up nicely to different stages in Aerosmith's life um, leading up to the climax. So the, the opening vignette, just a few paragraphs, is is gives it this very epic feel because it's uh, showing his great-grandmother Aerosmith's great-grandmother venturing out on a you know in a covered wagon out to west out to the west it gives our setting that we're kind of in the west but we're in the midwest this is set in the midwest um in fact we'll talk about the setting a little bit later on but because it is it is an invented state but it's got a clear kind of geographical positioning so it's kind of presented as this epic tale of you know, of, of frontier. And of course, Aerosmith, by the, you know, a few generations later, Aerosmith's living in a settled, quote unquote, civilized part of the country, but he finds new frontiers to explore in, in medicine. I think it's, in some ways, it's a very optimistic tale about progress in science and the scientists and the, the, the boldness of scientific endeavor, but it's also about the problematic characters that populate science, you know, the corrupted figures, the corruption in medicine, the, the medicine for profit kind of narrative. But also, you know, Martin himself, Martin Aerosmith himself is a very flawed figure. He's a little bit girl crazy. He's um, He has a tendency to overcommit himself to various aspects of his life. He, he can't be fully satisfied with medicine alone. He needs other things in his life. He's, he's a bit of a drinker. He's got alcohol problems, as many characters in the novel do. Even some of the his idea his the people he idealizes are similarly prob- problematic, like um, Gutlig, Gottlieb, Gottlieb. I think that's the pr- German pronunciation. Max Gutlieb. We'll meet him later in this episode. So, anyways, he's born uh, in 
when is it? 1890s or something like that? No, 1880s, I think, uh, in a town called Elk Mills. He's very much of an Anglo-Saxon stock. We're told, quote, Martin was like most inhabitants of Elk Mills before the Slavo-Italian immigration, a typically purebred Anglo-Saxon American, which means he was a union of German, French, Scotch, Irish, and perhaps a little Spanish, conceivably a little strange lumped together as Jewish, and a great deal of English, which is itself a combination of primitive Britain, Celt, Phoenician, Roman, German, Dane, and Swede. And as I read this, I'm imagining Lovecraft rolling over in his grave in some sort of weird panic, uh, because of the, <laughs> the the race mixing kind of face head on. I, you know, Sinclair Lewis throughout this book is satirizing things, and, and here he's certainly satirizing the eugenics, the eugenical ideals of a pure Anglo-Saxon race, because he starts out purebred Anglo-Saxon, who's actually a mongrel of, of all these different things. <clears throat> and he's sticking it to the eugenicists of the time. Remember, um, Lewis is on the left. He is a, you know, leftish writer of the progressive era. So anyways, we meet uh, little Aerosmith as a 14-year-old boy who doesn't really want to hang out with his doc, his father, who's like a salesperson or something boring like that. Instead, he hangs out with the neighborhood doctor, Doc Vic, what's his name, Doc Vickers. I can't read my own handwriting. If you're like me, you can't read your own handwriting. Doc Vickerson, that's his name, Doc Vickerson. Now, right away, the first doctor character we meet in the story is already a problematic character. He's an alcoholic, and Martin will become have his own issues with alcohol, as we'll see by the end of this episode. So uh, the idea that these doctors, although they're figures that are easy to idealize and respect and be, and, and be honored to have their company of, they also are typically are, are fairly flawed figures, corrupted in some way. And right, way, right away here, we have a small town doctor, not particularly brilliant. I mean, that's part of the story here in the first section of Aerosmith, is Aerosmith meeting, interacting with progressively more brilliant doctors and and him realizing that the people of his past that he respected aren't as great as he thought they were but that's something we all deal with when we mature as we go through different levels of education right the the teacher the this history teacher in high school who impressed us with his knowledge you know we find out that you know he was just teaching a curriculum when you get to college and maybe when you go to college you're you got some community college professor who really influenced you you thought he was brilliant, but when you get to graduate school, you learn there's a bigger world out there. You can go deeper into it, and you meet more brilliant people as you get deeper and deeper into your, your field. But you also, but you never get away from problematic people, people who have flaws of various types. Um, but at the foundation here, Doc Vickerson is, is an alcoholic, and I think it's foreshadowing some of Martin's own issues with alcohol. So the first exposure to a doctor is, is exposing this flawed figure. In fact, here's how he's described at one point. Um, the boy, normal village youngster, though he was given to stoning cats into playing pom-pom pull-away, gained something of an intoxication of treasure hunting as the doc struggled to convey his vision with pride of learning, the universality of biology, the triumphant exactness of chemistry. A fat old man and dirty and unvirtuous was the doc. His grammar was doubtful, his vocabulary alarming, and his references to his rival, good doctor Needham, were scandalous. Yet he invoked in Martin a vision of making chemicals explode with much noise and stink, and have seen ambulacules that no boy in Elks Mills had ever beheld. So, Martin is presented to be pretty special from early on, like having an interest in medicine. But, um, but yeah, this is his first exposure to medicine. 
In chapter two, we're introduced to Winamac. Uh, Winamac is the invented state. Um, now, what I understand about this is that back when he wrote Main Street, Lewis got into trouble with like fans or readers not liking how the town was portrayed because he based it off a real town. And so for future novels, he invented cities. And Zenith is the center place. This is the capital, I guess, or at least the head of the university of this state, Winnemac, which is, you can actually find Sinclair Lewis, like U.S. maps, because he changed geography a little bit. Basically, he added a state, you know, somewhere between Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, right? It's, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like Wisconsin and Michigan and it's, it's kind of a conglomeration of the Midwestern states, right? And I think depending on where you're from, you might thrust onto Winnemac your own state in a way. Like I, I get a really Madison feel from Zenith. Uh, maybe other people get a different feel um, from it, but it's very much a Midwestern state, uh, a, a grain producing state, um, but with significant cities and, and, you know, a lot of academic activity going on in these state universities, uh, substantial state kind of land grant universities here. So, um, so that's the location. We're in a, we're in a made up state. Other states are real. Like he goes to North Dakota and, and other places, but Winnemac, the center of the story, and Zenith are both invented. Uh, as we as we see him in Zenith, he's a student at the University of Zenith basically a pre-med student uh, in arts and science. And his idol at the time is a man named Edward Edwards. And later on, he is introduced to, as an undergraduate still, to Max Gottlieb, G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B, Gottlieb. He's going to be a major character in the first half of the novel. Um, and he's going to be actually very important for Lewis in telling a certain story about medis, medical corruption and the, the pitfalls of pure research medicine. He's an immunologist. Um, and that's going to become Martin Aerosmith's fascination, bacteriology and immunology in particular. So, you know, infectious diseases. Um, and right away, we're, we, we get a, one of the major conflicts of the novel, and that's uh, science versus humanities. Uh, that's not going to be as important as like the proper role of medicine, I guess, but it's there. Um, and so uh, we get this guy, Dr. Brumfield, he writes, he says this, this character, he's a minor character, but he says, I'm sufficiently liberal, I should assume towards the claims of science, but with a man like Gottlieb, I'm prepared to believe that he knows all about material forces, but what astounds me is that such a man can be blind to the vital force that creates all others. He says that knowledge is worthless, unless it's proven by a row of figures. Well, when one of you scientific sharks can take the genius of a Ben Johnson and measure it with a yardstick, then I'll admit that we literary chaps with our doubtless absurd belief in beauty and loyalty, and the world of dreams are off on the wrong track. <clears throat> and so he's, he's a typical humanities professor picking on the, the scientist uh, for not getting at the deeper meaning of humanity and life and all that nonsense. But I think the important thing is that Gottlieb is actually fairly eclectic in his interests. He's, he's into like the classics, and he's classically trained and... He's more like an old-fashioned kind of philosopher doctor in a lot of ways, even though outwardly he's kind of more of the hard-headed lab scientist. Um, so this, the science versus humanities debate here, I think, is a bit of a red herring at times, but I think that tension goes throughout it. I think it's deeper when you look at, you know, is medicine for just, is it just a business? Is it, is it just about 
selling good health. I think that's actually something that a quote from there's like the first season of House. I didn't watch all those episodes, but I remember the first season. There's the, they bring in that new doctor or the new head of the hospital, and he's like, you know, medicine is just a sales thing. It's just selling good health, and then we're just a business like any other. And that leads to the conflict between him and the main character. Anyways. Sorry, I might mention Dr. House a few times in this. Because I just think there's some thematic over overlays between those stories. Now, eventually, this is still in Chapter 2, he, he moves on to medical school. And this is when he really is able to build a relationship with Gutlieb. Um, Gottlieb and, you know, really being exposed to true brilliance. And he even starts to doubt, like, Edward Edwards, who he loved as an undergraduate, and not to mention Dr. Vickerson, the drunk, fat drunk back home. He really sees this guy's the true brilliant um, scientist, right? But he's kind of not that... He's kind of a cantankerous guy. He's in the lab all the time. He's not always... He's not popular among the students, but Martin Aerosmith is such a is smart enough to realize the brilliance of this guy. Um, and we also meet the students, the fellow students of Aerosmith throughout chapter, chapter two and into chapter three. And I think this is a lot of fun. These aren't characters that are going to have a huge impact on the story, but we get we get five hundred pages here to explore Aerosmith's life. So you know it's fine that Lewis spends time exposing us to these different people in, in his circle. Um, he's got now it's all kind of through this medical fraternity, the medical student fraternity at the University of Winnemac. It's called uh, Di Gamma Pi. That's the that's the fraternity that's that Martin Aerosmith is a part of. And he's got all these friends from there and they're a nice mixed bag of people. You have uh, the character who's really wants just to become a doctor to make money. He just wants to have a practice and, and, and become rich. You got another guy who wants to be a medical missionary, and there's all these fascinating conversations when they're dissecting the bodies about God and about the nature of the soul and all these things. And Aerosmith, more of a materialist, butts heads a little bit with this guy. What's his name? I, Ira Hinckley is the character's name. He wants to be a medical missionary, but you get some that kind of tension here. All kinds of great conflicts are set up in these early chapters. Uh by Aerosmith's different interactions. And I just think that's true of anyone who gets educated. I think anyone who gets a proper education, who's open-minded in their education, is going to be exposed to all these kinds of, of tensions in their own field, through the people they interact with, their friends, their, their colleagues, their professors, and they realize just how complex the world is. It's not even, you know, education is not just about book learning it's about actually learning how complex the world is and all the different perspectives and i think lewis does a great job of even though he's satirical and he picks on a lot of people especially later in the novel he's pretty fair i think to these other points of view i think with ira hinckley he's, he's he seems fairly fair to me in presenting a, someone who wants to be a doctor but comes at that through a religious perspective and 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 wants to be a medical missionary of course it's very important for missionaries is to is is this part of it right and a lot of great missionaries were doctors um, i studied for quite a while south china and the missionaries and imperialism in south china and many of the early missionaries some of the greats were this guy named peter parker for instance was a medis, medical doctor and he 
documented all sorts of illnesses in southern China and did a lot to cure people and brought surgery to alleviate the suffering of many people. This is an important, you know, part of the missionary experience, but it's not, it's, we don't normally think of like the deeply religious person as someone who gets into medicine. We usually, you know, Aerosmith is more the model of the, of the hard-headed atheist. Um, so in the same way here, and this is getting into chapter three, we have the tension between science and, and medicine directly. It's not just even this, the, the conflict between pure science versus money-making, right? Do we go into science to, for the advancement of humanity and knowledge for its own sake, or do we do it to make money, right? I don't know if this tension, maybe it's contrived, contrived sometimes. Like if you go back to Hippocrates or Galen, these weren't poor men right they were able to certainly advance scientific knowledge without uh without and still made money from doing it right you know not everyone you know i guess socrates i guess is the model right someone seeking truth but totally impoverished while doing so but here but i think when with gutlieb gutlieb um gottlieb i guess it would be uh sorry i'm gonna look up how to pronounce that guy's name before the next episode <clears throat> but with him, it's like, he's like, don't go into medicine. Pure science is, is better, right? But isn't practicing medicine also part of pure science? You know, isn't there research that comes out of that knowledge that's built, uh, at least vernacular knowledge through the practicing of doctors? I think some of these lines are harder than they really are, I think. But anyways, here's what we get. Uh, this is... Um, Martin complains about the medics. He's talking, no, he's talking to Madeline. He's talking to his girlfriend. He says, well, those darn studs, they aren't trying to learn science. They're simply learning a trade. They just want to get the knowledge that will enable them to cash in. They don't talk about saving lives, but about saving cases, losing dollars. And they wouldn't even mind losing cases if it was a sensational operation that advertised them. They'd make me sick. How many of them do you find that's interested in the work Alkrich is doing in Germany, yes, or that Max Gottlieb is doing right now. Gottlieb's just taken an awful fall out of Wright's Obstinton theory. And uh, anyways, let's talk about Madeline. Um, we, we meet Madeline here, and she's going to be an important... He's, she's basically the girlfriend for the first four, five, six, cha six chapters or so. And the first major, I guess, personal drama that Aerosmith encounters is is for a moment he's for a while he's engaged to two women at the same time madeline who's one type of woman and lenora who's a very very different type of woman um but before we get into this i'll talk about her more in a later chapter but uh in chapter four uh really the focus of chapter four is his own relationship with 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 his professor um um Gottlieb. And the thing is, most students hate him. Most students find him an odious figure. He signs too much work. He's too strict. Um, but Aerosmith likes him so, so much so that when he's in the lab, he actually mimics the hand motions with the microscope of his professor. Um, he's actually mimicking how he does it, how he curls his hands when he looks through the microscope. So he really has a, this love fascination with this professor. Um, but it's also driving him to this profession of bacteriology. Now, life is going to get in Aerosmith's way, making it more difficult for him to pursue a career in bacteriology and, and immunology. Um, he's eventually going to get back into it, but for a short term, he has to have his own private 
medical practice in a small town. But that's because life gets in the way, right? Then again, that happens to all of us. Now, what the professor wants is he says he should you should become a researcher. And this is another thing that professors will tend to do when they have a gifted student. They say, you know, become like me and, and you are the kind of person who can become like me. I want to replicate you. Right. And I don't think that's a good attitude to have with students. Obviously, you should let students develop into what they want to be and guide them along that way. But it's, it happens all the time in academia where you find that great student that you want to carry on your research or to help you with your research. Maybe it's worse in science than in humanities. I don't know. But he writes this. I do not think you'll be a good doctor. Good doctors are fine. Often they are artists, but their trade is not for us, lonely ones that work in labs. Once I took an MD label in Heidelberg, that was, Herr Gott, back in 1875. I could not get much interested in bandaging legs and looking at tongues. I was a follower of Heldsmoke. What a wide, blithering young fellow. I tried to make research into the physics of sound. I was bad, most unbelievable, but I learned that in this whale of tears, there's nothing certain but the quantitative method. And I was a chemist, a fine stink maker I was, and so into biology and so much trouble. It had been good. I had found one or two things. And if somebody, sometimes I feel an exile cold, I had to get out of Germany one time for refusing to sing Der Wach on Orion and trying to kill a cavalry captain. He was a stout fellow. I had to choke him. You see, I am boasting, but I was a lively Carol 30 years ago, end quote. So you get a little bit of his background there, why he had to leave Germany. It turns out also he's, he's a Jew and that um, at a time of rising anti-Semitism. But there's kind of politics and, and issues with behind him having to leave Germany. But the big theme here is he's, he's pointing out Aerosmith and saying, you're not going to be a good doctor. You should be a researcher like me. And I think this is this tendency to want to find that child, that, that, that son figure, that son or daughter that's going to carry on your legacy. Um, now, he's mostly a good guy, I think, in the midst of a lot of corrupt people, but he has his own issues, obviously. Um, so in Chapter 5, um, we see Aerosmith continuing to move on to new levels of medicine, go deeper into his research, move on in his graduate his medical school studies. But the big theme in this chapter is his relationship with Madeline Fox, who he's engaged to by this point. And, you know, she's a reformer. And Martin believes in progress. These are both progressive figures. And I think it's kind of some commentary on the progressive era, in a way, that Martin believes in overall human progress. Uh, his professor, um, Gottlieb, is more pessimist. He's more skeptical about human progress. Martin is much more of this American optimism. And he thinks the world will get better and science can help make the world better. So he's very much of the progressive era. And it's not surprising when later in the novel, <clears throat> we'll see this, I think, in part three of this series, maybe a little bit earlier, that he actually begins to run you know, a medical department in, in a, a fairly good-sized town. He becomes like the public health official. Right. So he becomes part of government and part of the government, increasing government role in medicine. So he's progressive. But Madeline Fox is also presented as someone who's kind of a progressive wife in, in the sense that her job is to reform the man. Right. And so it's also there's an optimism there. It's like, I'll get the man because Martin Aerosmith is presented as handsome, a little bit shy, 
you know, but someone you'd want to seek out to marry, but with his problems. So he's to, to, um, her job is to somehow reform him and make him better. It's, it's that same progressive logic. And of course, if you look at some of the things that women especially targeted in the progressive era, women's movements, I mean, you know, of course you have the feminist movement and the women's rights movement, but you also have movements like anti-prostitution movements to tar- targeting, um, what I want to say, like drinking, the temperance movement, a lot of that was led by women. So there was kind of still the separate spheres idea of women on the moral side of things, men on the corrupt political side of things. Um, We also see here that Martin and Madeline fight a lot. And the main thing they fight about is Martin's job. Like Martin does these part-time jobs. He's really overworked throughout the early part of the novel where there's often this running joke here that you know, he's, he's working 30 hours a day because he's got his lab work, his school work, his classes. He's got, you know, his girlfriend and he's got his job. So, you know, it's amazing how he can fit all this time into to do these, all these things. But he's got this kind of lower class jobs like a waiter. And Madeline thinks he's too good to be a waiter and he should move on to do something better. So there's there's a lot of conflict between the two. All right, so moving on to, to chapter nine. This is where we meet uh, Leora. Leora is a nurse uh, that Errol Smith is going to be engaged to by the end of this chapter. Um, so he's, he's kind of becoming more into peer research in, in his professor's lab, and Errol Smith is asked to kind of go get some kind of sample or some kind of, some kind of toxin, antitoxin sample or something from the from the Zenith General Hospital. And that's where he goes there. And while there, he meets this nurse, Leora, and he kind of falls for her right away. Uh, and in fact, they, they go out and he kind of basically proposes to her right away. And this is one of Martin's faults is he's a little bit girl crazy and he needs to have a woman in his life. I think he, and he can't really devote himself purely to research. Now, Gottlieb also has family, but we don't get the sense that he's quite as, you know, dependent on having a woman in his life. Um, so these are the two of the big conflicts in the early part of the novel is like the conflict over what is medicine. Actually, that's the conflict of the whole novel. And then this also romantic conflict emerges, this romantic drama. It doesn't last long, though. It's over by the end of the first sixth chapter. It's a fairly long chapter, but it only takes Lewis a handful of pages to get over it. Now, basically, Aerosmith does the right thing here. He introduces the two admits to them that he's been engaged to both of them and Madeline walks away and says, okay, you can have them. I don't want them, you know, and then he's with Lenora. So the, the contrast between the two is, is interesting. I think Madeline is more like the reformer. Let's make this guy better. Let's improve his life in some way, in ways that we want. Leora is more his ideal woman and someone who, focuses on making him particularly happy and and fulfilling his needs and it might be a little bit sexist perhaps in the way she's portrayed but i think you know that's uh that's the contrast we're given here um this she does emerge as a better match for him than, than madeline i think here's how lewis writes about it in the beginning of chapter seven he says the difference between martin's relationships to madeline and to Leora was the difference between a rousing duel and a serene comradeship. From their first evening, Leora and he depended on each other's loyalty and liking, and certain things of his existence were settled forever. 
yet his absorption in her was not stagnant. He was always making discoveries about the observations of life, which she kept incubating in her secret little head while she made smoke rings with her cigarettes and smiled silently. He longed for the girl, Leora. She stirred him, and with gay, frank passion, she answered him. But to another sexless Leora, he talked more honestly than to Gottlieb or to his own worried self, while with her boyish nod or an occasional word, she encouraged him to confidence in his evolving ambition and disdains. So a lot going on there to unpack, but she's what he needs at any point. So she's a bit chameleon-like here. In that Madeline was much more assertive about her position and what she wanted out of Martin. And Leora is what Martin needs at any point in his life. And, you know, so, yeah, it is kind of an anti-feminist portrayal of an ideal mate for him. It's, it's like that Star Trek episode, The Ideal Mate, where this alien woman has the ability to be whatever a man needs. That's sort of what Leora is to him. And even depending on what he needs at a certain time, she fulfills that 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 need. Whether it's like a drinking campaign or someone to go out with, whether someone to make love to or someone to listen to him talk, someone to support him. She's that person at all times. Um, so the main story in Chapter 7, though, is basically about Leora being introduced to his friends and several of the friends like her a lot more than they like Madeline. Um, but we also get a bigger window into Martin's vices and particularly his, his tendency to drink. It gets so bad that at the end of the chapter, one of his friends actually said like, maybe you need to slow down your drinking. Um, I think the drama was at the end of the night, he's drunk and he kind of is taking the girls home back to the hospital and he sneaks in after hours when he isn't supposed to and he gets caught by the police or the guards and it kind of becomes a kind of embarrassing moment. And this leads his friend to say, you know, you really should stop drinking. He says, you were frightfully stewed last night. Uh, this is a friend, Agnes. He said, you were frightfully stewed last night, Aerosmith. If you can't handle your liquor better than that, you better cut it out entirely. Not an anti-moral, not a, not a moralist stance towards drink, but just saying, like, you got to do better than, than what you're doing. And then chapter eight, uh... Again, we see Aerosmith kind of falling into the depths of his research with his professor, with Gottlieb. Uh, now, Leora is forced to return to North Dakota to deal with family issues. And so there's going to be some back and forth between North Dakota and Zenith for this in the next episode, as we'll see, as he kind of works out this relationship with her. But she has to go for family reasons, and she leaves him alone. And this gives him, I guess, the time to work on his research, but... Martin needs a woman, and he's very isolated here. Um, and so there, you can tell he's kind of suffering in his, his isolation from this, from this woman. Um, and science alone can never really fulfill him, I think. That's the sense I get. Now, we meet an interesting character here. His name is uh, Dr. Geek. And he's, uh, he's a guy who's going to reintroduce this question of commercialization of medicine. And he gives a speech... And Aerosmith's there to listen to it, a lecture. And basically the argument of this lecture is doctors are selling a product, right? The product of good health, the product of medicine, and that should be the whole persona of the doctor, even down to how the offices that they create are constructed. Um, he says, but gentlemen, it seems obvious to me, so obvious that I wonder it has not been brought up before, that the ideal reception room is a combination of these two schools. Have your potted palms and handsome pictures. 
To the practical physician, there is as necessary a part of his working equipment as a sterilizer or a bombometer. But so far as possible, have everything in sanitary looking white and think of the color schemes you can evoke or the good wife for you, if she be blessed with artistic taste. Rich golden and red cushions in a Morris chair enamored of the purest white. The floor covering of white enamel with just a border of delicate rose. Recent and unspotted numbers of expensive magazines with art covers lying on white tables. Gentlemen, there is an idea of imaginative salesmanship which I wish to leave you with. There is the gospel which I much hope to spread in my fresh field of endeavor, the new Ideal Instrument Company of New Jersey, where at any time I shall be glad to see you and shake your hand, any of all of you. So what's going on here is he's talking to these new group, these people who graduate from medical school, saying, you know, you got to have a practice that looks like this and you can buy your equipment and you can buy the ideal reception room from my suppliers and, you know, I'll, I'll hook you up with what you need. He's, he's a salesman. And that's what Martin doesn't want, but it seems many people, many of his colleagues, they're perfectly fine with that, right? And the question is, does that corrupt medicine, I guess? And Lewis's more socialist point of view, I think, lends to the idea that, yeah, money corrupts and, and it distracts from true medicine. Um, but that, there's another deeper tension, and that's just between the medical practice like being someone who deals with patients and heals individuals and those who do, do does research. That's what really is intersected in the final uh, stories, I think, of, of this novel. So I guess that does it. I think that's a good introduction to this novel. I think it, it deals with a lot of the major themes. It introduces us to our main character, a brilliant young scientist still in his early years of, of education. Um, but there's a lot more to Aerosmith's life, as we'll see in future chapters. So I'm really excited to talk about the rest of this novel with you over the next five episodes. So um, in the next episode, I'll be looking at chapters 9 through 17 of Aerosmith, which will cover his graduation, his establishment of a, of a practice in North Dakota, his marriage, and, and all, all of those issues. So important turning point in Aerosmith's life. So... That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think by sending me an email at 100pagescast at, 100 pagescast at gmail.com. Um, and uh, let me know what you think of Aerosmith or of any of the issues that Lewis brings up in this great uh, novel. So thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. That's when they begin Disappearing like the April snow Brown eyes, why are you blue? Brown eyes, what can I do? Don't keep the sunshine off of your eyes. Say if you are wise.